Thank you all. Worship felt, uh, I don't know, particularly sweet to me today. So thank you for leading us. Uh, let's let's uh, let's pray briefly. Lord God, your word is an inexhaustible fountain of truth. The truth about you, the truth about the world we live in, the truth about ourselves, the truth about the great salvation you offer us in Christ. As we turn to your word now, give us fresh insights, fresh applications by it. May it function today truly as food for our souls. May we be receptive to it. May we have an appetite for it. Help me to serve it up rightly and well and help us all to have receptive and malleable hearts that we might be uh, so nourished. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like us to consider uh, Old Testament prophecies prophecies today uh, regarding the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to what I want to do. I want to I want to talk about prophecy in general, the messianic prophecies, the, particularly about the incarnation itself. And, and I want to use one of the most famous ones, but I want to use it as typical of all the rest. What we see about we're going to look at one fairly closely, maybe more closely than you're used to seeing it. Almost certainly more closely than you're used to considering it, and that, but but know also that it's what I say about that one, and what we see about that one is is true about all of them. Uh, the Old Testament prophecies are are frequently cited during the Advent season, as well they should be. They really ought to be, and they are. Whenever you get a Christmas card with a lion and a lamb on it, you know you get a, you see that picture, a picture of lion and lamb. That's an allusion uh, to an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, when you see, and you see this a lot, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be in his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's an Old Testament prophecy of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in Jesus Christ. So we see it all the time, as we should. But those Old Testament prophecies, you know, that we see cited and we see in Christmas cards and things like that, they are always, and I, I think I mean always, pulled out of both their biblical and their historical contexts. Uh, and you also probably know that when you ignore context, either the literary context or of a verse or passage or the historical context. And by the literary context, you know, the context of the paragraph and the book and the historical context, the, you know, who first heard this prophecy? What was the, their situation in life? You know, what, in what historical context did it come? When you ignore those contexts, you can only, not only miss some very important truths, you can, sometimes you can miss the meaning altogether. Here's the principle a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> That's what we're doing. You know, removing a verse from its contexts as a pretext for a proof text. That's what us Bible college students did back in the day when we appealed to Philippians 
2.4 in the King James Version, you have to use the King James, as a justification for cheating at exams, copying off other people's papers, because Philippians 2.4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So you look and see what their test, you see how they answer. Look at the smart person and see how they answered that question. Copy them. But if you really want to know, if you really want to understand as fully as we should a verse or a passage, you have to read it and understand it in terms of its context. And like I say, the two contexts, the literary context, the context of the of the whole verse, the whole passage, the whole chapter, you know, the you know, look at it in its in the context of the in the Bible, but also look at it in its historical context. Who was the first, you know, who was this written by? Who was it written to? What was that situation? And don't be don't be frightened by the subtitle today. I and I couldn't help myself. I wrote the subtitle first. And I added the main title later in the sermon, Old Testament Prophetic Context and the Incarnation. Man, does that sound dry and boring. That sounds excruciating, doesn't it? You know, Old Testament Prophetic Context and the Incarnation. It almost scares me, and I wrote it. And it's, It sounds like something that's going to be obscure, uh, just of, something of academic interest only, that cannot have anything possibly to do with the lives of ordinary people like you and I. This is surely, this this is really, this this might be my, uh, you know, I'm a tragically misplaced Bible college professor coming out, you know, <laughs> tragically misplaced, misplaced seminary prof or something. The truth, is, and that's why I added the first title. So you'd see there's some promise of personal application in here. You know, the enlarge the frame of your life. Enlarge the frame of how you see your life. Make the frame bigger than what you would normally. And the truth is, you know, I have to admit, I really wanted to teach today about Old Testament prophetic context and the incarnation because, but I promise you that it's not just something of, a, you know, like something of being a theological journal that only a very narrow, narrow kind of audience would appreciate or see the point of uh, it has very that that subject old testament prophetic context and the incarnation believe it or not and i hope you see it in within a few minutes has very much to do with your life and mine because this uh we live in a historical context too um there are things going on in your life and in mine that can affect how we relate to these verses that speak of the glory and the hope and the joy of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. And really, that's how I treat, that's how I think of uh, and treat uh, this time of year, the Advent season, that it's, a, that it's a celebration of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in Jesus Christ. And, and our lives have... A context too, a historical context. And for a lot of people, the context of their own lives, in their mind, renders them immune or set apart somehow 
to all the hope and the joy that others seem to be experiencing. You know, like this, this whole season, there's something in a lot of people because of their own lives, their own, their own context. That's for other people. That's not for me. All this happy family stuff, it just, here's what some people think. It just seems to highlight the dysfunction and sadness in my own family. All of this extravagance, all, it just makes me feel broker than I am. <laughs> and it can't get over fast enough. Because everybody's so happy and everything's wonderful and part, parties and all of that. And my context is just, it's nothing like that. And it's, just, it's almost a taunt to me. And so it can't get over fast enough. And in that context, on that context, the context of your own life or some people's lives, people you know at least, the Old Testament prophetic contexts are going to shed a lot of light. It's going to have a lot to say to you if you'll, if you'll take the trouble, the care to see what we all should see in those contexts. And so with that encouragement and promise that there's going to be a personal payoff in this, uh, let's kind of dive in. The, the one Old Testament prophecy that I want us to think about in a little bit broader context than we're used to is, is one of the very famous, well-known Christmas card-worthy one in the book of Micah. And, when I, and what we see in Micah is, is really representative of all the rest, too. All the rest of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And just saying the name of the book, for some of you, might bring the verse to mind even if it wasn't on the bulletin cover, <laughs> although it is. <laughs> Micah 5.2. Page, if you wanna, and if you want to use a pew Bible, it's going to be, uh, some of the verses are going to be up there, but you might want to look at, the, at some of the verses around it too. Page 662 in the pew Bibles, you can turn to that. I tell you so you can look it up and you don't have to, you don't have to, you can pretend you knew where it was. You know, you can, you can go right to it, page 662. If you brought your own Bible, it's the sixth. Mike's the sixth of those 12 little bitty books at the end of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. Look at table, use table of contents. We won't judge. Go ahead. But here's the, here's the verse. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And, and David, leave it up there for until the next verse comes up. But what an amazing verse. Roughly 700 years before Jesus is born, the prophet Micah clearly says that the Messiah will be born in this little town of Bethlehem, this unassuming, unimportant, relatively unimportant birthplace of David, but not a, not a big place, five miles away from Jerusalem, which is the real big city, which is where you might expect Messiah to be born. It's going to be in Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, the house of bread, going to be the birthplace of the bread of life. It's, it, it's obvious. It's so obvious, of course, and you'll remember this, 
that the priests and the scribes who were asked by King Herod where Messiah would be born, they said right off, they didn't have verse notations like we do, so they didn't say Micah 5 too. But they said, it's in Micah, sure, it's in Micah, this is, this is easy. They quoted it immediately. Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So it's, you know, it's, they, didn't, they didn't like, well, well, that's an excellent question. We'll go study that. We'll research that. You know, no, they knew it. They knew it. Micah says so. It's going to be born in Bethlehem. What they, so they knew it immediately. Now, what they didn't see right off but might have is that here's another amazing thing about this verse is that they, it, this verse also teaches that the Messiah will, will be God himself having become a human being. And here's how it teaches that. It says Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and that he existed before he was born. He existed beforehand and not just nine months beforehand, but from eternity past. You know, I was born in Garfield Heights, Ohio. The year before that happened, I did not exist at all. But this one who's be born in Bethlehem existed from eternity past. That they didn't see. They saw right off he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but they didn't see this. And in fact, that's one of the stumbling blocks they have when Jesus teaches, for example, that he and the Father are one. Or that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He, they stumble over that, but it's right there in the same verse, the one they knew right off as identifying the birthplace of, of Jesus, Bethlehem. So that's the well-known verse, and we're going to leave it up there. That's the well-known verse, but what's the mostly unknown context of Micah's prophecy? Both the literary context, you know, the context in the Bible, and the historical context. Well, here are a few things. The nation was divided into northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and Micah is basically God's lawsuit against both Israel and Judah. Against the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And you see that in the very first verse. Leave that verse up there. But here's the first verse of the book. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, the northern capital, and Jerusalem, the southern capital. And what are the charges against them? Well, Micah highlights that they're both an idolatrous people. They're worshiping as God that which was not God. They rejected the God who made them. Instead, they worshiped gods that they themselves made, as if it were in their power to make God in their own image. You know, um, it's very common for people to reject God because he is not as they would make him. <laughs> I refuse to believe in a God who, and fill in the blank. No, I'm not going to believe in that God. I've gotta, I'm going to make one of my own. I'm going make to make him different. I'm going to worship something else. But they were steeped in idolatry. It's Micah 5, 7. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. It's not only an indictment of Judah and, and Israel, it's, it's also the sentence. The sentence phase and the uh, trial phase are all in one here. That's the people. Idolatry abounds. The so-called public servants, what we might call the political class, the ruling class, they weren't public servants at all. They were out for themselves only. And they used what we might in a New Testament context call their civil ministries or their civic ministries. You know, rulers are servants of God or ministers of God. They're using that just to enrich themselves, no matter the cost, to the ruled. Micah 3. And I said... Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's the political class, the ruling class. They promised a chicken in every pot, but what they didn't tell the people is all the pots belong to the ruling class, and all the people, you're the chickens. Going to take care of ourselves. In, In Micah's image, they're devouring the people. They're not serving the people. They're devouring the people fattening themselves up on the flesh of the people. Okay, how about the religious class? The religious rulers, the religious leaders. The priests who are supposed to teach truth without compromise. Uh, The the prophets who are, and once again, in the modern language we'd say, the prophets whose role is to speak truth to power. The ones who are supposed to be above the fray. Well, they're just as corrupt as the government. They're in the game too. Their their role as religious leaders is just an angle for the same thing. Micah 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. You hear that? The government's corrupt. The decision of the court goes to the highest bidder. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, this is the judgment, 
of Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. In other words, here's religious, the focus on the religious leaders. They were engaged in a lot of feel-good, affirming God talk. But at bottom, they were only in it for the money. They were making people feel great about their situation. God is among us. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. We're God's people. But they were just in it for the money, just like the politicians. Well, if that's what the political leadership is like, and that's what the religious leadership was like, do you think? What do you think the business world might have been like? Were they some sort of paragons of virtue and fairness and? No, of course not. Micah 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perfuzz. It is in the power of their hand. Why'd they do it? Because they can. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Chapter 6, verse 11. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? You get that image, of course, right? The deceitful weights. One set of weights. Businessman would have one set of weights for if he was buying something and one set of weights for if he's selling something to you. (laughs) A pound of butter is different depending on whether he's buying or selling. Your rich men, verse 12, are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. In other words, there aren't any honest brokers anywhere. Everybody lies. Everybody cheats. Everyone is out for themselves. This is Micah. Micah 7, it sums it all up. Verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Isn't that something? Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask, ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul... Thus they weave it together. The wealthy person and the powerful person and the professional religious person and the public servant and either the executive or the judicial branches, they all work together and it all is woven together. They take care of their own. And the poor... The powerless, the uninfluential, well, they just have to make do with what is left and lie and cheat the best they can to get by. Everybody lies. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing new under the sun. And in this, so that's the context And in this context, the biblical context, the historical context, in the middle, or really toward 
toward the end of this of this extended indictment of the whole national life of Israel and Judah, God weaves something. He weaves his promise into it, and he enlarges the frame around the picture. He makes it bigger than just all the crud that's going on, all the lying and the cheating and the oppression and all of that. He weaves his promise in so that his so that it includes more than just the terrible everyone's terrible behavior and bad situations within all that he says there's also there's coming a messiah there's a shepherd ruler coming who is going to who is God himself you see it in that verse in this verse he's God himself and he's coming He's going to be born among us and he's going to set things right. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And because of that, because of what will happen in Bethlehem from their perspective, Old Testament perspective, because of what has happened already from our perspective, the final chapter of Micah it's triumphant it says then the next one Micah 7 but as for me I'll look to the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me rejoice not over rejoice not over me oh my enemy when I fall I shall rise when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? And the book really ends with with like a a, a doxology. Uh, Verse 18 is a God, 718, yes. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's the... You see the context of these messianic prophecies? And we could see, and I won't, take, I won't take time to do the same thing, but we could in all of them. But just to give you a, a little sampling of it, Micah was a little bit later, could have been, a little bit later than Isaiah, but largely their lifetimes overlapped and their ministries overlapped. So their historical context uh, really is almost entirely overlapped. So everything I've said, what Micah notices, we could find verses like that in Isaiah 2, where he brings indictment about all those things that are going on. But Isaiah, really, his, his emphases are a little different. He's, here's one of the things that he points out. As their historical context, Isaiah laments the fact in in several places that for so many, their religious life was all ritual, no heart. It is all going through the motions. 
They were, they were they go through the motions publicly and private and away from the worship service. They're just steeped in sin against God. Here's Isaiah 1. You, you can take that down, David. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. By talk, he's talking about Judah. He's talking about the nation. He's not talking about the literal cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's making a comparison, and it's not favorable. What to me, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. This is God speaking to religious people. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, he says, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And that's a sampling of the context of Isaiah, of the historical context. But then you read things like this. Isaiah chapter 11, you can put this one up. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide to disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. It says, judge the case of the poor is what it means. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Message, Messiah is coming, and he's going to set things right like you've never seen them set right in your whole life. And before we apply this, although I'm sure you can see some applications coming, let's look at one more really briefly. It's the first Old Testament prophecy, the very first one, of the incarnation of Christ. Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent in the garden, who we suspected from the beginning is the devil, he is. <laughs> He says, I, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here's the prophecy. 
Satan's defeat will come at the hands of someone born of a woman, the offspring of the woman. In other words, when Messiah comes, he's not going to come from outer space. He's not going to materialize before our eyes like he's been beamed down from the Enterprise or something. He's going to be born as he comes uh, into the world the way we all do through childbirth. He's going to make his appearance as a baby. And that's, that's a prophecy of the incarnation. Now, I don't have to really explore the con. You know the context of this verse. The historical context and the biblical context. The context is literally the worst day ever. <laughs> it really is. It's the like you see online, worst period, day period, ever period. <laughs> worst day ever. Here's what's happened. Fellowship between God and man has been broken, shattered for the first time. And and only the incarnation of God in Christ can really ultimately put it back together again. And that's not coming for thousands of years. Fellowship, uh, from now on there's going to be a tremendous, here's part of Genesis 3, we won't look it up, but you know it to be so probably. There's, from now on there's going to be tremendous conflict in the man's role in his life. It's not going to just go be picking fruit by the sweat of his brow. The earth is going to fight him for his living. There's going to be conflict in the woman's role, in her unique role. Multiplied pain and childbirth. There's going to be conflict now between the man and the woman. You know, baked into the cake. And all of these things are going to go on generation after generation until the new heavens and the new earth. And to top it all off, death on that day became a reality for every son and daughter of Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam all die. When the man in the white lab coat comes in and says, I'm afraid I have bad news... That goes back to the day when Adam sinned against God. When the prayers for continued life of someone we love are not answered, and they die, it goes back to that bad, horrible, no good day when Adam sinned against God. And this long, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago when this young, talented, useful Christian apologist, Nabil Qureshi, when he dies of stomach cancer at 34 years old, leaves a, a wife and a, and a little daughter who's not old enough to really remember him. It goes back to that day, to that day in which that was said. Worst day ever. And in the context of that day, God makes this promise. It's a promise of the incarnation, the promise of that Christmas event, the promise of the Messiah who's overcome the grave, the first fruits of the resurrection, and who will raise every person who will receive him and the victory he offers through faith. 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Advent season. Christmas. You can take it down. And, and I'm not talking about all the baggage. I'm not talking about all the extra stuff. That, is some of it useful, some of it not. You know, if, if all you knew about Christmas is what you learned driving through Oak Ridge, you'd think Christmas is about reindeers and snowflakes alternately going down the turnpike, right? I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about the Incarnation the enfleshment of God in Jesus Christ and what he came to do and what his life and his death and his resurrection mean for all who believe now and in the future, that original Christmas event. It's for people whose lives have a context that is not all wonderful and good and fun and prosperous and happy. It's for people. It is for people who find themselves in some, for example, who find themselves in some way being crushed underfoot by the powerful or the influential or the popular. It's for the great masses of people who are not on the top and live in large. It's for people who can't make a few phone calls and make the bad situation go away. It's, it's for people who were not born on third base. It's for people who can't even seem to get in the lineup. Because the promised Christ has come, he's going to set things right, no matter what the powerful, the influential are, are due to you. It's also for people who are morally broken. And maybe living, it's for people who are living, like, the, like all these prophecies, their lives, what it was like, what was going on. It's for people who are living with the inescapable consequences of past mistakes, moral mistakes. You know, people hate to admit moral shortcomings these days, maybe all days, but these days. And so they, they say things like, I made a mistake. I made a bad decision. But most of the time, it's a moral mistake. <laughs> and it's a, it's a immorally described as sins. But remember what Micah said. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So this, yeah, I've... I've made mistakes as we like to say i've messed up and i'm living with the consequences and there's nothing can be done about it the consequences aren't going away 
But Messiah has come. And he is, ultimately, he's going to plead my cause. He's fixing me. And in the end, I'm go- because he came, I'm going to be, he's going to look at me and call me holy. He's going to separate my sins from me, as, not just from the punishment. He's going to set my, separate me from my sins as far as east is from west. He's reduplicating his character in me through faith. And my destiny is to be holy. And I'm, yeah, I'm morally broken, but for, just for now. Because Messiah has come. It's for people with chronic problems in their relationships and families. Because those families were born into a morally broken world. All the families of the earth have been blessed, can be blessed through him who came. It's for people who have gotten bad news from a doctor. Or who are suffering grief because someone they love is no longer with us. It's for people who have come face to face with death in their families. Because Messiah was born to taste death for every man that he might defeat the last enemy and give eternal life to people who were once under the sentence of death through faith in him. So if you think, if anybody thinks, you know, I just can't get into this whole Christmas hope, joy, peace, I can't get into it because... You know, the world has ground me down to a nub. (laughs) Or because my relationships are all fouled up and there doesn't seem to be any fixing them. Or because I seem to sabotage, there's something about me, I sabotage good things in my own life. (laughs) Or because I've already made too many mistakes to, to live, to have the Courier and Ives wonderful it's already messed up for me. Or Christmas worship, you know, it's it's all over for me because somebody I love has died. If you if you think that, if you're some, you're missing the biblical point of the whole thing. You and your situation is why God came in the person of Jesus. And he's going to set things right. You and your situation is why Jesus was born. You above all people ought to take hope in and give worship for the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Do like just like the prophets they concentrate on what's wrong, but but God enlarges the frame and he says, Messiah's coming. And you look back from where you sit in history, you say, Messiah has come and he's coming again. So let, let it enlarge the frame around the picture that is your life so you not only see the troubles and the hardships and the sadness, the moral mistakes you've made, how you've messed up, but enlarge it to the biggest of pictures, and that biggest of pictures says, Messiah has come. And he will do his work. He will complete his work until the day of Christ. To the praise of his glory. 
and his grace. Selah. Lord, uh, lift us all out of the small vision of our own lives as we see them and as we live them right now to give us the big vision of that which will be forever because to us a child has been born, to us a child has been given who will set all things right and who begins to do so now in all who believe in him. Grant a greater faith to all who believe and grant the beginnings of faith to any who are outside of Christ and without hope beyond this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.